Good evening, and if you have your Bibles tonight, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 6 through 9, continuing our study, laboring together with God as we talked about the gambling farmer, uh, and then we're going to talk about the trusting farmer as well as there's another farmer in there. And uh, the three types of Christianity that gets involved uh, for the Lord or doesn't get involved, and we're going to talk about those uh, this evening, continuing our lesson on this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 6, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. So then, neither, uh, verse 8, now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are labors together with God, ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessing uh, upon this uh, portion of Scripture tonight, as well as the rest of the lesson that follows. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I do thank you for this day. And God, I'm thankful for uh, the gift that you've given, an opportunity to labor with you. And Father, that the fact that uh, all we need to do is just be faithful to that which you've called us to do. Lord, you're the one that ultimately brings about the work. And uh, Father, our uh, obligation and our responsibility is to uh, be in the fields that you've put us. And Father, I just pray that you would be honored and glorified with all that's said and done. Lord, I love you. I thank you for being an amazing Savior. Help us this evening. I do pray that you be with those who are out as are on jobs or wherever they may be hunting. Uh, Lord, that you'd keep them safe. And Father, I just pray that this would be an encouragement and, and the Lord also uh, a challenge in our lives to draw us closer to thyself. And so God, I just dedicate this time to you. I ask, Lord, that I would be your vessel to be used to be an encouragement. So I yield all that will go on this evening to thee. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. As we looked at last week, oops, uh, I have planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. And uh, as we look at this, the fact is that our part is to be a faithful farmer, and uh, God's part is the fact that he is the Lord of the harvest. Now, we looked at three kinds of farmers last week, and we're going to continue our study of the gambling farmer. We'll look at the controlling farmer, and then we'll look at the trusting farmer, depending upon how far we get this evening. And so, with respect to the gambling farmer, just a little bit of uh, review, uh, he ignores the laws of nature. Uh, as we had mentioned, let me just put these up here for you. Oops. So he ignores the laws of nature and the fact that when a farmer, uh, he ought to, in, in, the, in the springtime, he ought to get his fields ready and begin to plant his seeds. Well, the, the gambling farmer is a man that is lazy. He's the Proverbs sluggard. Uh, and he may not do planting until, uh, say, July or August, and, and hoping and praying that uh, the crop will grow fast enough that he can get a harvest. Uh, he's very lazy. He ignores God's normal ways of provision. Uh, he doesn't do things on the timing of God, and uh, thereby he reaps the consequences of being lazy uh, for the Lord. Uh, as we look at further, he has a painful life. He has a wasteful life. He has an irritating life, and he has a self-indulgent life. And we think about this, a painful life and the fact that uh, he's always worried. Uh, he's not doing things by God's, uh, by God's laws, by God's commands. And so he reaps unto himself additional pain. Uh, he wastes a lot of his life on things that have no 
uh, matter before the Lord. I mean, he's continually going down, uh, you know, side trails that take him off of the path, much like you would find there in John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. You know, Christian would get off track, and, and here's a man that's going off track and, and uh, just wasting his life. He has an irritating life. I mean, he has an effect upon others uh, that because he defies the laws that God gives, uh, he is an irritation to others, and he himself is under irritation, because again, he is neglecting to follow that which God gave him. He also has a self-indulgent life. His life is about him, his wishes, his emotions, his comfort. Uh, it's all about him. It's not about pleasing the Lord in any fashion therein. And so again, this man uh, has a life that's very, all, it's all about himself, very self-indulgent. Now, what about mercy? And this is kind of where we're going to be picking up and the fact that God is merciful, but why can't you let him have a second chance? Now, God's mercy contains two things, and, and we did discuss these last week, uh, just in brief. Now, uh, the question comes from a misunderstanding of what mercy is. Now, in this idea of the gambling farmer, God is merciful, and we know that he is. So why can't God give the gambling farmer a second chance? And their main concern oftentimes is that people are happy and have a sense of well-being. You know, and uh, consequently, you know, in courts, parents, government, employers, school officials, uh, you know, some, they give out some sort of penalty uh, for unacceptable behavior. They, they're accused uh, oftentimes when they're giving out a judgment, as a judge gives something, they're accused of being unmerciful, ungracious. They're accused of being too hard. Uh, they're not considering all the conditions that the individual's going through. Now, God's mercy contains two elements. Number one uh, that you see there is an inward concern for the miserable plight of someone. Number two, an outward action aimed at relieving that desperate condition, even at great expense to the one relieving the suffering. So we see this in respect to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me go through several examples here. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus was moved with compassion uh, when he saw a leper uh, who needed to be healed. And it, it, Jesus was moved with compassion. How about a widow's son whose son had just died, leaving her in a destitute condition? It says, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, weep not. And then Jesus would say to him, I say unto thee, arise. And that young boy would come to life. A crowd who had been with Jesus for three days uh, without food, 4,000 men and plus women and children, they would have seven loaves and a few fishes, and uh, Jesus had compassion on the multitude, understanding where they were at and that they were hungry, but he continued to want to preach to them. Uh, and so he told his disciples, get them food. And they said, how are we going to feed 4,000 plus people? And so Jesus had compassion, and he multiplied the seven uh, loaves and the few fishes that were there. The two blind men who needed their sight restored. It says in verse 34 of Matthew 20, so Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. So here are some people in some desperate conditions, outward action, again, relieving a desperate condition. This is what Jesus is doing. But their condition of what they're doing is not necessarily a result of any sin on their behalf. They haven't necessarily uh, defied God's laws like the gambling farmer has. So his compassion was always extended to a physical condition to the greatest misery of all, you know, to a soul captivated by sin. You know, his compassion would lead him to challenge his disciples to pray for laborers. Look with me at Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. And the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he has 
his greatest compassion in heart was for those that were in bondage to the sin and the power of sin on their lives. So in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, as we read here, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted, and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. And saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. And it's on a very frequent basis. I, I get an email uh, Dr. Coomer has, and he sends out all these churches looking for pastors. I mean, it's multiplying. I think it's up at a 50 now. And there's a lot more, but those are just people that have signed up on his official list. And uh, he sends other things out, and that just happens to be one of the things he sends out with it. But nevertheless, as you think about this, there, are, there is a dearth, there is a lack of those who are out there having compassion on individuals that need a church, right? And so to re- represent Christ well in this world means that we must be moved with compassion when we see the dire state of the lost, willing to relieve their misery at great personal cost to bring them to Christ. Additionally, on another level, we're to be concerned about their physical dilemma of those around us, you know, especially to them who are of the household of faith. And so if there's a believer, uh, you know, a member of the church or someone going through that we know is a believer, loves the Lord, uh, going through a hard time, it's incumbent upon us to, again, exercise compassion on them. What about the biblical response to someone, though, who is suffering the consequences of their own sin, potentially like this lazy farmer, this gambling farmer, uh, as we have labeled him? Should we bail this individual out of the consequences of their actions? Now, to answer this question, we need to look more closely at exactly what God is trying to do in this individual's life, you know, in regards to showing this person mercy. We've already seen that God's mercy moves him to rescue us from our pitiful state, right, our pitiful plight. Before salvation, our most urgent need is to accept Jesus Christ, be rescued from sin, the power of sin. Now, God extracts us from the power of sin in our lives. Now, notice with me how the writer of Hebrews, what he does here in Hebrews chapter 12, and this is a painful position to be if you find yourself in this, uh, in the position of God uh, chastising his own child. And uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Verse 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth a peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. And so as we look at this, the most merciful thing that God can do is to chasten us. Why? Because he's trying to produce the fruit of righteousness in us. And so a God-loving, word-filled, ministry-minded disciple-maker will be more concerned that their disciple, the person that they're working with, is extracted from the the bent or from the inclination towards sinful behavior. And so there's an immediate unpleasantness about their lives. And and when you're discipling someone and talking with them, and, and they're going through some very hard times, oftentimes those hardships are a direct result of some bad decisions that have been made. Now, going forward from here, uh, chastening produces a test of a person's fate. And so we're going to begin to view life from God's perspective. Now that God has his attention, will this individual continue to go the way that they're going? 
Can they see God in the picture now? And most important, will they submit to God now? In every trial, we think about this, the trial of chastening, James exhorts us to, you know, that we let that have its perfect work, perfect and entire work. You know, that we are to let God have his complete work in us. See, without the consequences of sometimes uh, going through these very, very difficult, discouraging, depressing, uh, uh, overbearing situations because of bad choices, much like the gambling farmer would find himself in, a painful life, a wasteful life, an irritating life. So we don't need to be removed from that unpleasantness, but we need to work through that unpleasantness to get us to the place of changing. There's something in that gambling person's life, that gambling farmer's life, wherein God's desire is to produce a joyous experience, as we found here in verse 11. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth a peaceable fruit of righteousness. So to cut the trial short by removing this grievous consequence short circuits what God's trying to do, and in fact, it, it continues to lengthen that person's consequences, and, and it could potentially bring those consequences upon oneself. I had a family member at one time. They had a, a family member of theirs, and uh, this individual was making some very unwise decisions, and they kept letting this person stay in their house, and uh, they kept doing it, and, and it was bringing some additional hardship uh, on this family member. And uh, there was some real trials, some real struggles, some real challenges in, the, in that life. Now, it can very easily happen that the you know, if you're around someone who's in a mud pit and you try to get them out of the mud pit and you're trying to grab hold of them, you're going to get muddy. And that's oftentimes what happens. If I'm trying to short circuit or help them out of the position that their bad choices put them in. Now, the unpleasantness is a part of the rebuke of the Lord, a correction and instruction in righteousness. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. So the, the correction, the penalty, it has to be administered by an overseer with a heart that is truly concerned about the desperate spiritual condition of that individual. And God is concerned. Not only that, as a disciple maker, as a one who's discipling someone else and they're going through some bad decisions... You've got to come and make the statement, listen, some of the things you're going through are a direct result of your decisions to go against the natural laws of God. And uh, you cannot have a mean spirit. You cannot, you're going to pay for that kind of attitude. You know, if you're going to help someone, it's not like, well, you deserve it. It's not a mean spirit, but at the same time, it is coming to a reckoning that, again, the gambling farmer has made some bad choices. And they've created an enormous stumbling block in their lives. And so the goal is, is to take that uh, disciple and to restore them back to the Lord. And it takes time. It takes uh, patience and oftentimes much patience uh, in doing that. And, and sometimes, you know, as you begin to uh, reveal these things, uh, uh, you know, it's our own pride. It begins to buck authority and it's like, well, who do you think you are? And, and these things start to come out uh, in our relationship with the Lord. So, the fact is, can the individual, the gambling farmer, can they see that God's in the picture? We need continual reminders from Scripture to examine our lives when we deal with our faults. 
You know, in Matthew chapter 7, why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? But considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye. And so there ought to be, as a disciple maker, a, consider, a consideration. You know, he says, and thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam in thine own eye. So there needs to be an examination as a disciple maker in my own life. Is there things in my life that need to be changed? You know, and, and sometimes things. But if you're trying to uh, restore someone to the Lord, many times in their pride, they're going to try to bring it back, uh, bring it back upon you. Say, hey, you did this. Not deal with the situation. They're going to try to uh, divert the attention. They're going to change the attention. They're going to, uh, if they're indeed not repentant. Now, Galatians 6.1 tells us, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual... Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So again, we have to think about when we're discipling someone else, how would I be if potentially the same, you know, the circumstances happen? Most, I would say 100% of the time, uh, what has produced a bad reaction or bad circumstances is there was some tragedy in the past. They've held on to it. That's created their life, and so all their life has plunged because of some hurt in the past. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, it says, Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continuing them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. And so, can the will? And the other question is: Will this individual, the disciple that you, whom you're discipling, will they submit to God now? Are they willing to say, you know what, God, I'm just sorry? And that's really in regards to the mercy. It is God's mercy that extends the chastening hand upon us to turn us from the bad condition where we're at. And so, coming back to the gambling farmer, his main problem here is that he pleases himself rather than pleasing God. So we need to clearly see consideration of the gambling lazy farmer, the Proverbs sluggard, that his main problem, again, he pleases himself rather than pleasing God. So as he's living his life, the, the conditions with which he's living is that I want to please myself. If somehow it matches to please God, hallelujah, but if, it, if, if God is inconsistent with me pleasing myself, well, then out goes God and, and in comes myself. I'm going to do it my way. And from that, he needs to be rescued from the reproofs of life. You know, it, it, the condition they're moving is it's destructive, and so God tries to rescue him, and he allows these hardships. You know, and there ought to be also an appeal of concerned brethren coming alongside, and by corrective intervention, of coming alongside and saying, hey, listen, the, the direction you're going is wrong. Proverbs 12, 24 tells us, the hand of the diligent shall bear rule, but the slothful shall be under tribute. Proverbs 15, 19, the way of the slothful man is as an hedge of thorns, but the way of the righteous is made plain. Someone who is lazy in their relationship with God, lazy to conduct and do what God has called them to do, will increase to themselves, as it says, a hedge of thorns. The ways that you're going are going to be uncomfortable. 
Proverbs 19.15, much like this guy laying on a couch, slothfulness casteth into a deep sleep, and an idle soul shall suffer hunger. They're going to have a hunger in their soul. They're going to be looking for other things to continually please their soul. It could be in the purchasing of new things. It could be uh, in, you know, in looking in jobs or hobbies, vacations, all these sorts of things. And there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those by and of themselves, but... It's this idea that I need to please myself and so I need to continually indulge because I'm not being uh, fulfilled by the Lord. I'm not being satisfied by God. And so therein, I've got to deal with my soul that is hungry. And they always find that they get to this new thing and their soul is still hungry. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4, The sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold, therefore shall he beg and harvest and have nothing. Dr. Bob Jones Sr. said, the Christian philosophy is a philosophy of self-denial, self-control, and self-restraint. The satanic philosophy is a philosophy of live as you please, have what you want. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. It's your life. You've got a right to live it. Now, as we think upon this very thing and going on to the next individual, the controlling farmer, let me go back there real quick. So he's a disciplined man, uh, the controlling farmer is. But he is a one that still is concerned with pleasing himself, much like you see uh, underneath there. And so in the controlling farmer, he does keep the laws of nature. Uh, he keeps them religiously. This is an individual. I mean, man, anytime the doors are open, they're there. Uh, they've got to read their Bible every day. They've got to do their studies. Uh, I mean, just they're a by-the-book kind of an individual. You know, they plan on time. They do their studies. They do everything they can uh, to get the seeds out, to get the farming out. Out, diligently keeps all of the laws of nature and can often become self-confident. Can turn out a pretty good crop. Can often be, you know, in this whole process, he's very disciplined. Might even ask God for help him to understand how, a, a, how to farm well and might pray that God will send some uh, right weather conditions. Most of the time it works. He, he, gets, he has a great crop. He might even do well in the farming. He might even look at the slothful farmer and, and with an air of smugness or contempt or uh, reproach, he'll look down upon him. When observing the sluggard's fields, he said, I couldn't live with myself if I let my fields degenerate like that or I don't understand what's wrong with that man. All he has to do is get out and get his hands dirty. Anybody, anybody ought to be able to figure that out. And so there's an air of arrogance about him. He works from sun up to sundown just to make sure that he's done everything that he can. You might be saying, well, that's quite a, a good man here. But he is driven and controlling. He's even to the point of being a perfectionistic and about his labor. He might become even so intense about doing right that he makes himself and everyone close to him miserable by continually questioning his own motives, doubting whether he's really done his best, wondering so again, it's all about my image that I'm pleasing myself by how good I can do. He can become filled with self-doubt. Consequently, he may redouble his efforts, push harder, push longer to begin to do everything that is right. If he's in a leadership position, he can oftentimes become overly critical of the work or the spiritual condition of others that others just aren't measuring up, demoralize followers with a fear-driven obsession to be sure they're doing right. Now, the problem here is not in this gentleman's diligence 
uh, you know, in making his underlings accountable. There's nothing wrong in leadership in holding those who follow you accountable. But there is, what his problem is, is his confidence in himself to get the job done. So he's, again, this is an individual that may lead by flesh-driven fear of failure and loss of control. And so with the idea of a loss of control, they double down on the idea of authority. They can't tolerate becoming vulnerable. Doesn't like surprises. Wants it done that way. Wants to know what's going on. Uh, wants to be able to do something about it. Now, some early warning signs as we think about this is, you know, as a child or as a parent, that this is an individual that, you know, in earlier in life, they can become like a rebel, but a budding, controlling farmer can be a really good student, perfectionistic, scholastic, great citizen, a valedictorian, Christian leadership. I mean, this is an individual that just pushes hard. You know, they, they, a child can learn how to be a trusting farmer, as we're going to discuss next. But in this whole idea of the controlling farmer, again, it's pleasing himself to have his public image before others and how he is. And so he, he can become snobbish, he can become exclusive, he can become a haughty, proud spirit, uh, may have difficulty uh, in regards to even reaching out to others because they don't measure up. Now, he may receive many corruptible crowns. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verse 24. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we, an incorruptible. So he says, listen, they're temperate in all things. They've got self-control, they're striving for mastery, but he says they're doing it for a corruptible crown. And I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. And so there is, you know, even this a lot of times in a church growth movement back earlier in the 70s and 80s and 90s with some of the churches that were just booming with all of these programs and games and everything else that they were doing. Uh, we're bringing a lot of people in, building large kingdoms, and uh, believing that they were doing the work of God, when in fact they could, not necessarily or were they not doing the work of God, but they could have uh, also been like the controlling farmer, building all this work by themselves. And they can work so hard, uh, they can work themselves into a place of a complete exhaustion. You know, and so there's a lust for control here. And this is the controlling farmer. And uh, so his life is intense, makes him difficult to live with. He even find living with himself to be a great burden at times. He may not well wear well in relationships, have a hard time getting close to people, uh, because relationships contain too many variables. There's too many things that he can't control, friends, and, uh, and they can change, and their attitudes might differ. And so uh, just kind of keeping that kind of uh, a greater distance, beginning to experience maybe potentially some physical problems. His body can sustain itself, but uh, after a while, the intensity begins to bear down on him physically when he pushes himself. He may suffer from gastrointestinal disorders, stress-related illnesses, tension headaches, chronic pain or numbness, and insomnia. There's a mind that is never really at rest. His body is in a constant state of emergency. Uh, and a physician may very well tell this individual 
reduce the pressures of your life. You need to stop trying so hard. But over time, these physical effects will produce chronic and permanent damage on the body. So it takes an enormous amount of physical and uh, mental energy to be in control at all times. And it will even crush the strongest of individuals. As you can see, the physical and relational price of being self-insured uh, is high. Now, we must not, you know, the heart of this, we must not miss the subtle shift of what's going on. Controlling farmers often unwillingly the stopover point for many people who have left the ways of the gambling farmer. So they go from being the gambling farmer, they do a knee-jerk reaction, they become the controlling farmer, thinking, well, this isn't working, so now i got to do this. And so they work so hard trying to serve God, trying to be pleasing in His sight, trying to read and, and read their Bible and pray and, and you know, do all that they can for the Lord, and they come to the place of just absolute exhaustion. And in the end, they end up dishonoring God. Their self-indulgent, chaotic, unproductive lives were evidence that they were trying to please themselves. Instead of bowing in humility before God, they persist in their arrogance to control life. You know, before, uh, as a gambling farmer, you know, they ought to repent of their slothfulness if they're doing this knee-jerk reaction rather than going from one extreme to another. But they need to repent. And so when they begin to apply some of the discipline of their lives, they get some pleasing results. So you stop being lazy, you start pleasing the Lord, and as you begin to see results, it becomes so enticing that that individual begins to work harder because they're seeing some results. And so if I'm getting results, then I need to work harder to get more results. Then rather than having the position of humility before God, it begins to come back upon oneself, again, pleasing of self based upon the results that are coming. And, and, and that's very easy for us to happen, easy for uh, individuals that when we begin to see God work, we take it upon ourselves, much like uh, Solomon would do with what God had given to him. And we want to ensure that we get these results every time. And so we go all out to do more than what God has called of us. And so there's a subtle shift to an intense desire to please oneself by maintaining these results. And what happens again is that pride sets in. Others might think that the controlling farmer is unnecessarily opinionated. Since he's usually right in the end, they generally will follow this gentleman's, or this guy's uh, suggestions, guys or gals. And so, and so this individual, again, is going to have better crops than the gambling farmer. You know, it, it is wrong that in his mind he always has to be right. This person always has to be right. He's impatient with other opinions. Uh, cannot see how, you know, uh, he will get the results if he <laughs> wants, if he follows others their way. You know, it's kind of like, well, you're not going to do it right, so I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to make sure it's done right. And again, pushing, pushing, pushing. So this controlling farmer really is a legalist. He does what is right in his own eyes. But he is at heart a legalist, one who does the right things, for self-advancing, self-preserving reasons. And just, you know, this pleasing self is at the heart of legalism, just as it is at the heart of slothfulness. Excuse me. Many today don't understand the issues of our flesh. And when they see the hard, joyless life of a Christian legalist who disciplines himself and others their own way, they abandon disciplined living altogether, supposing that the problem is his intense discipline. You can burn out. You can do so much 
with the intent for God without actually doing it for God because you did it in your own power, you did it in your own way, you did it for your own results and your own uh, pleasing, that again, you wear out. And the flesh can produce only destruction. So you push, 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 push. You grow, 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 grow. You get results. And then oftentimes you'll come to a plateau and then you begin to go down. Romans 8.13, the Bible tells us, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. So the slugger does whatever he wants. Leisure and fun. The legalist does right to get what he wants. He wants a bumper crop. He wants, not only does he want enough, but he wants additional, just in case. Neither of them, however, experience much peace or true rest in their soul because they're flesh-driven. Neither of them will be able to give a good account to Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. Upon the foundation of salvation in Christ, they have built only with the wood, hay, and stubble of life, as we find uh, in this. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, verses 10 through 15, According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon, thereupon, for other foundation can no man lay, and that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So the controlling farmer, again, he keeps the laws of nature. He gets results. He can be hard. He can be difficult. He can be intense. But he does it in his own strength. And he's building the wood, hay, stubble. Because in the end, it's not going to matter. He's doing it for the pleasing of himself. Let's come to the trusting farmer here as we look a little bit further. He does keep the, the laws of nature. And, uh, you know, there's a better way that truly reflects the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to go back real quick and look at that analogy. He's disciplined, but he's doing it out of a pleasing of God, as you see there. And so with this, he keeps the laws of nature. He's, he's like the controlling farmer. He does keep the laws of nature. He does go out and, you know, and plant the seeds when God wants them. But he does it for an entirely different and a higher motive. He does it with the desire to be pleasing to God, much like our daughter will oftentimes say, uh, did I do good, Daddy? Did I do good? You know, she'll say, was that good? You know, she'll ask questions about things. And, and he keeps these motives for the Lord, not to ensure the results that he wants, but because he loves the Father. And so as we're serving the Lord in the ministry, are we doing it because out of obligation, or are we doing it because I just want to serve the Lord? You know, he wants to wish, he wishes to honor the Father. You know, obviously, there's a desire to see results. All of us have desire for results. I mean, <laughs> we're result-driven. Oftentimes, I mean, we, we have jobs and we do things, and, you know, you're baking in the kitchen with the result that what you bake is going to taste good, or you're cooking, you want it to taste good. You go to a work because you want a paycheck, and, you know, there's all these results that we want. And so as we serve the Lord, we want results, but... The, the, the desire of my heart, the determination to, for moving forward with that is ultimately that I want to be pleasing in the Lord's sight. You know, more concerned about how I'm doing it. How am I going through the process to get these results? 
That's what matters. Am I, having, am I doing it in the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, temperance. You know, and, and the thing goes on there. So no matter what results the Father gives, there's a certain amount of fruit out of this man's field. But it's the whole process. It's kind of like as you're walking the trail to get to the destination, it's how do I walk? How do I go there? You know, and this whole thing. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, the trusting farmer says, whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so the trusting farmer is saying, listen, if I'm going to serve God in the ministry of the local church, I'm going to serve Him you know, at my workplace, I'm going to serve Him out in the community, whatever I'm doing, I want everything that I do to be for God's glory. He's diligent. He's disciplined. He labors to exhaustion. But he does, you know, and he does it to gain God's favor. And he throws his life into his farm because he has God's favor. Every day of labor is another page. It's another step of faithfulness to God. You know, and there's kind of like thanking God that he made it to another day. He trusts God to help him to do right, not to get what he wants. So the trusting farmer says, God, I thank you for what you're given you know, in Romans 7.22, it says, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. So God-loving people have no trouble loving God's laws, since his laws are a reflection of his neighbor. So the trusting farmer gets the greatest delight. He gets the fruit of righteousness, if you would. Uh, he doesn't get it in the fact that he very well may have a bumper crop. He has additional extra things that he can do uh, for God's glory, but... He gets in the fact that, you know what, I got to this position in an ethical, God-loving, ministry-minded, word-filled, God-pleasing fashion. It's the countenance with which the results were gained. It's not that, as a leader, you're pushing others so hard uh, and, try, and getting results, but you're doing it to the point of burning people out. It's, uh, there's oftentimes, I, I remember years ago, I had a pastor tell me, uh, in regards to church and ministry, it's, uh, I can't remember exactly, but it was basically essentially, you know, people come in, you work them so hard, and then they say, I'm out of here, and they leave, and then you just keep recycling. That's not a godly philosophy. That's a very man-centered philosophy. It's very wicked altogether, but it's the fact that Jesus, he invested himself compassion in his disciples, uh, and he exhibited a lot of compassion. And that's where, you know, there, as we read earlier, that they were sheep, not having a shepherd. He had a compassion. Listen, they need someone that's going to care for them and oversee them and, and do it with a heart upon the Lord. And obviously that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this man, in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And this is what this man is. He's been faithful. So there is a danger of being good without God. Now, we think about this. He can become dependent upon his own disciplined habits. You know, doing right becomes a normal way. You can get into a, you know, just as you can go the wrong way and make bad decisions and get a rut doing the wrong thing, in the same way you can get in a rut doing the right thing, you can begin to read your Bible every day and meditate and, and journal and, and pray and really just focus on the Lord, but you can get in the rut of doing that and as you do that, uh, you begin to exhibit rather a focus on God. You put a focus on yourself of how disciplined you are. 
you know, that I'm godly because I do this every day. No, uh, the, your, the attitude can very easily become legalistic, controlling, self-dependent, self-glorifying. And so this is something that God has to continually remind us about. Listen, we must not become dependent upon ourselves. You know, the, God does convict us. Hey, listen, you're getting into a rut in your time with me. You're becoming self-dependent. And so then, and when we're convicted, we bow in humility before God, and we say, God, I'm sorry. You know, it is so easy. I mean, you know, and that's the same thing with David. David was there on the rooftop. He, it says when kings go to battle, he should have been in battle, but he was like, well, we're, we're always winning, we're winning the wars. God's helping us. I can stay back, and, and I can relax tonight. And, and so he goes up to the rooftop, and we know the rest of the story, but he has that adulterous affair. But he began to get comfortable and realize that, hey, God's working and things are moving and the kingdom's progressing forward. So he got self-dependent and got dependent on his men rather than on God. And ultimately, he would have also, you know, some other decisions that were made, but he got self-dependent upon the people. You know, the hallmark of a trusting farmer is that, you know, they have an amazing, outstanding characteristic is the fact that the fruit of the Spirit is evident in their life, no matter what the yield of the fruit. If he does have a fruit of a hundredfold, he's not going to become cocky and arrogant, you know, just as you might find uh, if things begin to grow and things begin to uh, really multiply in God's blessing. And individuals are saying, well, what'd you do to do this? One of the things I I find... uh, one of the pastors, Pastor Sullivan, I know God's greatly blessed the church, but it's, again, it's not about anything that he's done. He'll continually give it to the Lord. It's what God's done, what God, you know, the, and I think about that. It, it reminds me, I was just listening to a sermon here recently, and I thought about the blessings that God's done. Humbly grateful for what the Father has done, what the Father's produced. If the Father's destroyed the standing grain with a hailstorm, this trusting farmer will distrust God, not get angry, Understand that the decision is the Father's. He delights in the Father. He's not moved by the calamity the Father gives. Whether it's the hailstorm, whether it's the rain that ruins the crop, whether it's the day of small things or the day of great things, it's always in the trusting farmer. Listen, it's always on pleasing the Father. And he has a trusting heart. He trusts God who promises that he is always present, always faithful to provide whatever. And so the fruit of the Spirit is there. We understand from Hebrews 10, 38, the just shall live by faith. And this is the trusting farmer. You know what? You cannot please God without pleasing in faith. We, know, we learn from Hebrews eleven six, 6, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. You know, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And the trusting farmer says, listen, I just need to seek God. He wishes to be like Abraham, the father of the faithful, who staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform, Romans 4, 20 and 21. Think about this, at 75 years of age, God promised Abraham, and his wife was 65 at the time, that you're going to have a child. Now obviously there was some doubt there, but at age 99, he was told you're going to have a son. And he believed. He didn't stagger at the promise. And even later on, maybe some 20 years later, when he was asked to sacrifice Isaac on the altar, he didn't stagger at the promise, knowing that God was going to give him 
a seed from his wife. So whether Isaac died, God would give him another one, or uh, God would raise up Isaac. But he didn't stagger at the promise. Abraham was faithful. So there's a spiritual eye that sees God in everything. Trusting the Father doesn't make us lazy. It just makes us reliant, dependent, which is where God wants us. That the outcome is God's. My obligation is faithfulness, even when the labors are hard. Showing much diligence, orderliness, cleanliness, much like the controlling farmer would have, but with a different motive. Works faithfully, diligently to praise and delight the Father. You know, as someone who loves the Lord, there was a recent homegoing of a Miss Connie Rempel, and uh, in this going home of this uh, lady that she battled cancer, there was a joy, and a joy of uh, pleasing the children and being on the bus and serving them and investing her life into their lives. I think about just the demeanor and the countenance of, uh, as uh, her desire was to please the Father. Our lives ought to bear much fruit, but in the earthly fields, we may not necessarily see a lot of fruit. The enemy can lay waste and, and create some really bad, hard times. But the trusting farmer embraces the words of his master. Let's look at John chapter 12, verses 24 through 26. I will bring this to a close here shortly. John chapter 12, verse 24 through 26. John chapter 12, verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If a man serve me, him will my father honor. The trusting farmer says, listen, I just want to serve God. You know, in the end, it pay, it'll pay off. His greatest delight is being faithful. Being together with God, as 1 Corinthians 3.9 talks about. And so, May God help all of us to be faithful, trusting farmer whom the Father can honor. We'll bring it to a close there. We'll have to pick it back up next week and complete this uh, session and this series. And uh, I trust that, you know, we think about it. I don't want to be a gambling farmer. I don't want to be lazy. Uh, I don't want to be undisciplined. I don't want to be pleasing myself. I don't want to be a controlling farmer trying to do it in my own strength because it's wearisome. It is tiring. Uh, and uh, you begin to bear some un <laughs> undesirable fruit. But if we are the trusting farmer and simply just trusting God, bringing our problems, bringing our petitions before the Lord, uh, then we will be able to truly honor Him. So let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed for this evening. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, I do thank You for this evening. I thank You for Your wondrous gift of life. I thank You, Father. Just the challenge... God, rather than being dependent and trying to work so hard, all we need to do is exactly what you ask of us. Father, we just need to get into the easy yoke and, Lord, labor alongside of you. We need to be pleasing you. God, the, the results are not in our hands. The results are from thee. God, help us to be found faithful to the cause. I love you and thank you. What an amazing Savior you are. In your precious name I pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a